Welcome to World New Clash Class. Other side. Other side. Hey there, this is Pastor Jason, and today's episode of Worldview Clash Class Other Side is with George Ortega of Exploring the Illusion of Free Will. He's also the author of some articles, blogs, and books on the same topic. Today, we're going to have a discussion on the implications of the absence of free will. First off, would you define what you mean by free will, just so that we're all clear on what the illusion is. Sure. The idea of having a free will is that we're able to think, feel, say, and do whatever we want without anything that's not in our control, uh, either influencing us or actually compelling us to do what we do. Okay. And this was totally determined for you and I to be here tonight. Am I getting it right? Yeah, basically what's happening is you're thinking thoughts and expressing them, and I'm thinking thoughts and expressing them. And what's actually happening is God is imparting us with these thoughts. God is kind of like scripting this entire interaction. Okay. When you and I have this conversation um, and we're thinking about these things, do you think at all believing in determinism? Like you just said, you believe that God has, has predetermined these things. God has been the cause of all these things. So do you believe that there could be a free will that is determined by God, that God could have just given us a free will, or is that something that just can't happen? Well, it it seems that that would be against God's nature. Like, for example, God, you know, can do whatever God wants, but God cannot, for example, make two plus two equal five, because that, that goes against God's nature to be logical in that sense. Okay. Okay, so, so what you're saying is the idea that God could impart to us a free will would go against God's sovereignty. So I've seen this before as two separate planes. There's um, you know, free will or a man's decision-making, um, and then there's God's sovereignty um, or ultimate determinism. So uh, if we try to run those two together, we'll do damage to one or the other. So if we believe in free will, which I think is the stance you take, correct me if I'm wrong, if we believe in free will, then we really can't truly believe in sovereignty because that does step on what God owns. And in the same token, we can't really fully believe in sovereignty uh, without totally getting rid of the idea of free will. So those two can't live side by side. Is, is that the basic idea, George? Yeah, and what, what's interesting, historically, at the turn of the first century, um, there were three dominant Jew- Jewish sects at the time. The... Um, the Pharisees were the largest. They believed that we had a free will only when we were trying to make moral decisions. The Sadducees believed that we had complete free will. The Essenes, a much smaller sect that, that many people believe, people believe Jesus evolved from, believed in God's complete sovereignty so that we had no free will. Yes. Okay. And I've heard you say several times before, so... The idea of free will, or at least the propagating of free will, that idea um, traces back to St. Augustine, right? Yeah, he was grappling with the question of evil. He was saying to himself, and he's right by his logic, you know, if, if we didn't have a free will, it would be unfair for God to compel us to do something wrong 
and for God to then punish us. Okay. Okay. So then here's, here's the question. So I believe in free will. I also believe in God's sovereignty. I've heard the argument from people before that those two really can't exist side by side. And I do understand where that's coming from. And I think every time we try to like make them mash and, and, you know, try to harmonize them in some way, that's what does the, the most damage, at least from my, from my view. So do you believe that people choose to believe in free will? Because I know it's, it's the question of belief in free will. So do I willingly choose to believe in free will, or am I determined to believe in free will until someone opens my eyes to something different? Yeah, that, that would be the case. You know, we don't get to choose what our beliefs are, exactly. Okay. So if your entire goal is, is to give another option, true as you may believe that is, uh, isn't that itself opening up the door for me to use free will to say, you know, you know George, you're right. You know, you have this thing nailed down. I, I believe this now. At what point am I transcending what I would call free will and entering into uh, to sovereignty or if you want to call it uh, determinism where I'm saying, uh, yes, George, you're right. Am I choosing that? Uh, you would be. And, and, and an example in the Bible is, I believe, Romans 7.15. Uh, Paul is saying to, the, to Romans, you know, I don't understand what's going on. I yeah. try to do what's right, you know, but sometimes I can't. Something, there's something within me that's preventing me. So he got it. So yeah, anyone who expressed a sentiment like that or just this kind of understanding would be demonstrating that they had been determined by God to, to shift their position. You know, I guess it's similar to with, uh, with evolution. You know, like uh, many people, uh, once they heard of evolution, began to, to believe that rather than the world having been created through this Garden of Eden, that it was like evolved from the Big Bang and all. So it's just like reacting or responding to new information. Okay, so that makes sense. Um, so if I'm looking at, let's say, Joshua, you know, Joshua is, is saying to the folks, choose this day whom you will serve. So how would I view that passage from determinism like how, how would i look at what he's saying there he's saying choose how would i see that as anything other than them making a choice right that's um and so like the it, the idea isn't so much about whether we have a will we have wills or whether we make choices because we make choices all the time the the the, the, the question is whether the will is free or well whether our choices are free of factors that we're not in control of Okay, so on that note, so then if we travel back to to the Garden of Eden, and um, on on that fateful day when uh, you know Eve picks up that apple after listening to the serpent and, and snaps a bite out of it, Adam was the one to receive the command. He's with her. We're told in Scripture he reaches over and grabs a bite of that apple too. So God specifically told Adam. This is what you can do. You can eat of anything in this garden, but of this one tree, of that fruit, you cannot eat or you will die. So is what you're saying that God decided beforehand that Adam would eat from that apple? Yeah, and this is curious, Jason, because one of the attributes of God that we tend to uh, ascribe 
is omniscience. You know, God is all-knowing. So it would seem, yes, God, just like a parent, will test um, their children, you know, to, to, to determine their morality and all. It seems God tests us knowing beforehand uh, how we'll do on the test. Okay. Okay. So that makes sense. So when we're looking at morality as a whole then, which I, I know you've spoken on extensively, um, what does morality look like in a world where all people have rejected the idea of free will? Where we're all living under the idea of determinism. Like, what does morality look like there? That's a great question. Okay, like, today in the world, let's say something happened here in New York. We wouldn't blame someone in California for it because we know that logically they couldn't have taken part there in California. So logic compels us to not blame that person. Um, and so, like, let's say somebody does something wrong and, and we... Um, and it, it would be immoral, for example, like to blame somebody in California for something that happened in New York. So with, with, with free will, what happens is to the extent that we, we shift from blaming ourselves and each other for what we do, and of course, when, what we do wrong sometimes, um, we're kind of absolving ourselves. And, and this is, I think, the, the, um, the foundation of forgiveness and perhaps also the foundation of modesty. You know, why do we forgive others? Because we know that we're imperfect. We know that we, you know, we make mistakes. And then and why are we modest? Well, generally, be because um, we understand, you know, athletes understand this, you know, there are, we can't do, we can't achieve what we achieve, except that God allows us, God, God, you know, takes part in that achievement. Okay, so I'm just going to throw another um, example out there, just, just tagging onto this. So um, back in 2003, I don't know if you remember the, the man Armin Muse from Germany. He uh, put an ad out on the internet looking for someone to kill and eat. He had 10 people respond and said that they were willing to, to take part in this. And he put all the specifics down there, what he was looking for in his victim. And um, he finally narrowed it down to two. He selected one. The guy was a smoker because he said that he liked smoked meat better. So he invited this guy over to his house for dinner, and he killed him and ate him. So I would have a difficult time from my position right now reconciling the fact that that's what God determined, that in this man's genes, his nature and nurture both pushed him to where he would do this heinous act. Uh, how, how am I supposed to look at that from this position, George? Yeah, and, and, you know, I don't have a good answer because we want to see God as all good. Um, I guess what, what I say to myself is I don't believe God needs my approval. You know, I don't believe I, I can judge God because I'm not either intelligent enough nor knowledgeable enough. But I think what's much more important for me is to approve of and like my fellow human beings, you know, who, who, who are subject, you know, who, who can, for example, with this person, you know, he seems like he, he you know, he, he has serious, serious problems. Naturally, there should be laws mm -hmm. that, that prevent people from doing, you know, terrible things. But, but you know, this perspective, while you're right, it, it, it implicates God. Um, 
it allows us to treat this person, you know, with compassion. Yes, we may, you know, if, if, if the person broke laws, we, we, we'll have to, you know, prosecute and, and um, you know, uphold our society. But, 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 I mean, you're completely right. That is why people, you know, resist this, this knowledge, this information, because you can't escape that there's only way, one way to absolve God of, of the evil that happens in the world. And that's if we rely on God's attribute of being eternal. So in other words, like in order to implicate God in, in the example you raised, we would have to come up with a time where God decided, well, that's what I'm going to make happen. Mm-hmm. Now this, you know, it gets a bit surreal because like, if we go back in time further and further and God is eternal, it doesn't seem like we ever reached that time. Because let's say God made, you know, let's pick an arbitrary time like the Big Bang or something. Well, there would have been a cause that God that made, God would have made God do that for some reason. So you see that, so that, that's the only way we can absolve God really. But, but, you know, your point is, is very well taken. That's the difficulty that people have in, in understanding this, this knowledge. So in understanding uh, psychology, if I were to go and visit with Mr. Muse, um, you know, in prison, how would I approach this man? How should I look on this man knowing that, as you say, what he did he couldn't have helped doing because that was in his wiring? That's a great question. All right, like... What you may be familiar with the police tactic that's known as good cop, bad cop. That one, one uh, police officer will, will threaten and talk disrespectfully toward uh, um, a suspect, and the other will empathize with him, will say, hey, yeah, you know, like, you know, I can imagine how you felt when you did what you did, you know. And, and so, like, and what, what happens is that approach. I believe often yields better results, um, you know, because because um, because the person is and, and and you in in your work, you know, among prisoners, I imagine you took that that perspective there, but for the go- grace of God, go I. Mm. You know, we're not in there because of God's grace. So I think that that evokes in us compassion. Yes, we have to like we can't condone evil, we can't condone crimes, but we can we can help. The, the, the criminals see the error of the, their ways. And I think often that's easier if we don't convict them, if we, if we tell them, listen, you know, you're here because you did something wrong and society has to protect us against things like this. But I want you to know that, that fundamentally you're innocent. It was very, very misfortunate set of circumstances that got you there. And the, the benefit of that is that that person doesn't label the person as evil, as a bad person. Because sometimes when that happens, they don't see how they can change. Hmm. All right. another another example but I'm, I'm gonna try to kind of contradict everything here so uh, it's it's determined that mr. muse did what he did and uh, where I see this kind of 
running into the wall is a situation where uh, if God has determined all things, where God would determine two things to be contradictory. For instance, a young woman gets pregnant, goes to an abortion clinic, then was that determined for her to go to the abortion clinic and then the gentleman is standing outside or, or the lady with a sign saying abortion kills babies. Which one of those was determined? Are, are both of those determined? Is, is God uh, then contradicting his work in one area by his work in another? Yes, that, that's a good question. It's kind of like the, the, the sun shines on, on the saint and the sinner alike. Um, and, and yes, it's surreal. You know, why, you know, a question that I ask on my God series all the time if God is all powerful and, 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 you know, all knowing, you know, why would God create a species like us human beings and other species that are sentient? We feel ple- pleasure and we feel, and why would God have us really want to feel happiness and pleasure and be good yet, yet um, have circumstances uh, that, that don't allow for that? You know, I, I can't understand that. It doesn't seem fair to me. You know, I, I say to myself, well, you know, again, I can't judge God, and God does give us a lot of blessings, so, so we have to accept the, the good with the bad. I guess maybe it's the, the, the idea of, like, if we have parents, you know, at a certain age, I guess we, it comes, uh, we arrive at the understanding that our parents sometimes do things wrong, and I'm sure it's a kind of a letdown and all, but, but we need to accept that in our parents. And, you know, my perspective is that, that we can expect, accept that in God. Let's, let's talk about God for just a second. So from what I understand, you're a pantheist. Is that right? Yes, simply that I believe that everything is material. That, that if God is every, everywhere, then God must be everything. Okay. So granted... God's everywhere. So then, do you see God as being a personal being? I do. I do. And this is a bit different from Einstein was a pantheist, but he didn't believe that. I, I believe that God, this it's like this reality, it's kind of God's mind, God's imagination. And, and I believe that there's only one being, that, that God is the only being, and we are all a part of God manifesting God's will. So, is God writing a book, or has the book been written? Yeah, it seems that even, you know, this is a great question, because, like, think about this. If, if God knew a billion years ago what God would be doing today, God seems to be locked into that knowledge. And so, yes, it, it seems like that, that um, now, and, and, and again, we, we run into the, the, um, the dilemma of this eternity going into the past. So it was, it, everything has been predetermined, you know, written in stone in the past. But logically, at least, we can never get to the point where all that began, because then we'd, be, we'd end up asking ourselves, what, what happened before that? Okay. All right. So how do we know what we know of God? Like, I, I understand you said if, if, if God is everywhere, he is in everything. How do we know that? Where do we come up with that information of, of who God is? Great question. I come up with it logically. I, I start out with, I think, what's, what's a reasonable assumption that we live in a reality and the reality didn't create itself. So, so you know, I start out with the understanding that 
what we call God is what, what you know, the being that, that created this reality. And that's like, you know, the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heaven and earth. So if we start with this understanding that God created everything, then we, the next question is, well, if God, let's say, existed, God is all that existed before God created this world, then the question becomes, well, what did God create this world from? And the answer that, that arrives in my mind is that if, if God is all that existed before God created this world, God must have created this world from and, and I, I actually have started referring to God as her because I think I think we need that that kind of feminine or whatever. So like so basically God, you know, God um, created this world from God. And so that means that, you know, not only is God has does God have this kind of like uh, seemingly transcendent nature where God is everywhere we can't see, but God is everywhere. You know, if, 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 if God, you know, created the world from, from everything, that must mean that God remains everything. Okay. So when we look um, in the Bible, so obviously I'm, I'm a Christian pastor. I, I turn to God's word for absolutely everything my whole foundation of what i know of god is because of what he's revealed in the scriptures and the reason that i rely so heavily upon that call me a fundamentalist i'm fine with that is that you and i can both turn to the same page and you can say oh i see where you got that you know i I see where that comes from Um, i believe that god's word is is fully reliable for all things so when i look into the original language and i look in the beginning God created, and Barach is the only time that word is ever used, is ex nihilo. He made everything out of nothing, out of nothing at all. Um, when I think about that, and I think about the position of evolution, I think about 3 billion, 4 billion, 5 billion, 14 billion, whatever the number is that we're dealing with now. Is it difficult to reconcile the fact that our logic often goes against what God's word says? The way I, I view things like this is that um, there are two options. One option is that every word and sentence in the Bible is flawless. It, it, it's, it's exactly as God communicated to the writer. Or the second option is that these writers may have Probably, and, and my understanding is like, if, if, if these writers are human, um, to, to believe that, that, you know, the entire Bible was communicated to people and, and transmitted, you know, century after century without any mistakes having been made, to me that, that seems like it would be a blasphemous view of human beings because we would be inscribing to the writers of the Bible the same kind of perfection we ascribe to God. So, so I use that kind of reasoning to then surmise that, that some of what we um, read in the Bible may not have been what, what, um, what God said you know, initially to that first person who then transmitted it.
typically, whenever I, I preach a passage and when I'm studying the Bible, I am trying to look at the words that are in front of me and take it in that first person view. So, I mean, I don't stand up here and, and preach, you know, God is love and just throw that out flippantly. I want to know how God wanted that to be received by the first person that read that letter, by the first person that heard those words. So uh, looking at the Bible that way and thinking about being in that position, um, myself, I need to be in a position where I am trusting the people of the past. Um, and like you said, and I've heard, I've heard lots of people say this, uh, oh, well, that's an awful long time to, to carry these words forward, and perhaps there were some errors. You know, I, I believe God preserved his word. So if you look at the grand scheme of things, like let's just say you and I are, are, are out for a walk, and we come upon a house, and the last time it was inhabited was 1920. We open up the door, and there is a skeleton in there with a hole through its head. We can surmise that perhaps the person was shot by someone or perhaps something else happened. Um, if you and I go looking for clues, we're going to find very little evidence of what actually happened there. Whereas if this happened in 1980, 1990, there'd be a lot more clues because the farther we get away from something, you and I both know, we've been around long enough to know this, the farther we get away from something, the harder it is to to make sure that that thing has been preserved. So it would be easier for us to solve a crime from 1990 to 1920. Do, do you agree with that so far, George? Absolutely. Okay. Oh, yeah. So the way that I see God's word, knowing that um, from some of the scholars um, that have told us how it was preserved, um, sometimes they would write the words on the inside of their tunic so they could make sure that it was uh, protected and transcribed uh, exactly the way that God wanted it transcribed. We were told that the men of old were carried along. Uh, the image is, is like that of a sailboat being carried by the wind. So obviously inspiration is very important to me. So when I view the word of God, I, I see this thing as direct, like this is what God intended. I have a difficult time, George, understanding where we meddled with it in in the past. Like what parts of this should we not take as literal that, that you see? Well, it, I think it's that um, the Torah, you know, the, the, um, the teachings were, were both written and, and much of it was actually oral. For, for, for many centuries, it was just, um, you know, transmitted orally. And then, you know, I think this guy, Judah Hanasi, Judah the Prince, decided that, well, if we, you know, we may lose some information unless we write it down. So my guess is it was during that period where it was being spoken, you know, from person to person that errors may have arisen. Okay, I got you. So in that, in that particular view, when we are considering God's word, what God's word says, um, I know there are some particular passages that um, I, I'm, I'm guessing, I don't want to assume too awful much, that um, you may see as not necessary for today. So, um, for instance, someone breaks into my house in the daytime. It is my duty to make sure that they get out of my house. I protect my family. They break in in the middle of the night. I have the right, biblically, to kill that man, that woman, whoever broke into my house, and I have no blood guilt on me because I am assuming that because they came in in the middle of the night that they had ill intent. So they, they put their life on the line when they entered my home and to protect my wife and all my kids, 
I shot that person and, and now they're dead and I'm, I'm innocent. Um, whereas the Bible also says that if they're outside the middle of the night and they're shouting, hey, what are you going to do about it? I can't shoot them and drag them into my house. Then I would have blood guilt on my hands. So are parts of the Bible like that where they are actually calling for there to be an action upon action or a consequence for someone's actions? Yeah, no, it's like God, uh, the Bible, religion in general, tends to um, promote this idea of self-defense. You know, even like, you know, I, I reject the notion of free will. But if somebody is trying to kill me, you know, I'm not going to say to myself, well, I'm not going to kill them. I'm going to have them kill me because I can't blame them because they don't have a free will. So, so yes, like there's a lot in, in the Bible that, that, you know, that we're, we're able to do in that way because it really is the right thing to do. It's not like we're doing anything wrong. Okay, so let's just draw that out again uh, just from the biblical conclusion. So the Bible is all, so you said earlier, um, you used the word fair a couple times. When the Bible talks about fair, we know the, the, uh, the word shalom, we're talking about um, peace, but it's not just peace as in like tranquility. It's peace is making sure that all things are restored. There's a process of restoration. So if I take your car, I don't even know what kind of car you drive. I take your car and I take it and I, I take it for a spin. Um, if something happens to that, I owe you that car's value plus 20% according to the Bible. Now in that, or you're holding me personally accountable because I stole your car, right? And now I need to pay you back for it. Whereas the same token, there are some sins that the only punishment equal to repayment is death. So for instance, if a man rapes a woman, according to the Bible, he has then laid his life on the line because he has taken something from her that he cannot give back. So what do we do with determinism? What do we do with accountability when we have an action where someone takes something that cannot be restored, do we just say, uh, hey, don't worry about it. You were wired this way. Well, what do we do with that, George? Yeah, I think that there is um, a responsibility we have to ourselves and to society to try to prevent uh, instances, cases like that. So basically, we have a, a legal system, just like the legal system of the Israelites, um, that's prohibitive, that, that basically it, it, it tries to impose penalties or threaten pen penalties um, in order to, to, to deter crimes. And naturally, like the way how you would deter a, a crime is like that, you, you, that people know that you can't, you know, in some cases just like do something and then not be able to make up for it and then just you know go scot-free and in, in cases like that you know the person needs to know that fine you can't you know make make up for for whatever in kind but there has to be a punishment not because the person deserves it but in order to deter other people from from doing the same thing mm. okay so basically you're saying that there should be some sort of example made so that people know don't do this is basically what you're saying yeah, and that actually comes from the way we were designed. We were designed by God to seek pleasure and avoid pain. You know, that's happiness is our fun, fundamental motivation in life. So um, 
rewards and punishments are very meaningful to us. You know, we, 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 we see something that, that has a reward attached to it. We will want to do that, that good. And then we, we see something that has a punishment, a threat of punishment attached. And, and, and we are designed, we're hardwired, you know, to, to resist behaviors like that because, we, you know, that would bring us uh, suffering. Okay, I got you. So I'm thinking uh, scripturally um, along those lines, the Garden of Eden, Eden means place of pleasure. So we abandon uh, the place of pleasure um, however it happened, you say, you know, that, that we, who are we to challenge God and, and his decision to allow it to happen? Um, I see that as, you know, Adam knew when he snapped a bite out of whatever that fruit is and that juice ran down the back of his throat, he knew he wasn't supposed to be doing that and, and he made a conscious choice to do that. So they were kicked out of the place of pleasure. So if you look throughout the whole rest of the Torah, you look all the way through the rest of the Old Testament, we see people seeking pleasure in many different things. And biblically speaking, we're all wanting to get back to that place where we can eat from that tree of life. And that is you, me, uh, the atheist, uh, the deist, you know, everybody, the agnostic, everybody wants to have pleasure. Everyone wants to live in a world where um, Mr. Muse does not eat people where the woman is not getting an abortion, where there's no reason to stand out there with a sign. We all want to live in that world. There's not one person that's walking, living, breathing, walking out the streets in front of my church right now that does not want to see the guy get the good guy get the girl in the end of the movie, right? We all, we all want that. But biblically speaking, that is something that we've been removed from because of something that happened a long time ago. So how is it that God, through the method of determinism, is getting us to a point of, of complete restoration and healing? Or do you even see that as something that's, that's necessary? Well, I, I see that. Yeah, I see it as necessary. I believe it's necessary, but I also see it as happening. There, there are two books that I read over the last several years. One is called Progress, and the other is called Abundance. And with these two books, the authors chronicle how in so many ways our life today is so much better than it was for people 500 years ago and a thousand years ago. So I see, you know, even though our world has a lot of problems, but we are living so much better than people did in the past. And I think we're going to continue this. I think this trajectory is going to, you know, move forward until we cre create a, a place where people seek pleasure, but only in ways that are, not harmful to themselves and others. We have this wisdom to, to seek pleasure and succeed in, in ways that are virtuous. Mm. Okay, so when we think of the idea of determinism and the work that you're trying to do, what do you hope, George, in a hundred years, when you and I are bones on the ground, what do you hope will have been accomplished by your life and the work that you're doing? All right, that's a great, I mean, like, I, I have known for years that in order to make people much happier and also much virtuous, all we need to do is teach, you know, our children. For example, imagine if, if every day in school, K through 12, they had a half an hour instruction on how to be really happy. And imagine along with that half an hour, they had a half an hour instruction on how to be really good, how to discern between right and wrong. So I believe, you know, 
in a hundred years, that would create a much better world, a world of much happier, much more virtuous people. But we have other avenues. You know, our medicine is is miraculous. You know, we, we're saving lives all the time. And, you know, we, we tend to think of medicine as applying primarily to physical ills. But I've been reading books where where it could be within several decades, for example, they are able to engineer these nanobots or some kind of like artificial intelligence, some kind of like technology that that will allow us to respond, for example, to, to touching our, our uh, a stove with our hand, a hot stove, but pulling it away without pain. Just like to be able to like, we may be able to engineer medically a way for us to not just be pain-free relatively, but it could be that we have this, our conscience could be located, for example, in the brain, and imagine um, scaling up, ramping up the activity of our conscience so that we're a hundred times more effective at discerning right from wrong. So I think whether it's through the, the, the methods of teaching and learning that we've uh, applied over several millennia, or through more technological means, I think we're, we're headed toward a wonderful paradise. Okay. All right. So one, one last thing um, on that. Uh, I agree with you that we've made a, a lot of progress. I mean, I, I was reading uh, the historical document saved by George Washington's doctor where he poisoned him and, and bled him out and poisoned him and bled him out and poisoned him and bled him out. And just think about the malpractice suit that there would be today. Have we not made the progress um, to know, you know, hey, hey, this guy just had the flu. You know, we, we have simple methods. We could have taken care of that. Uh, but we didn't because we didn't know back then. So I agree with you. You know, the, the progress that we're making um, is, has been remarkable. With the idea of determinism and free will, we obviously cannot impart free will to a robot. A robot can only do what it's programmed to do, just like a computer program. So um, there was Tay. Tay was a – are you familiar with Tay? Um, it sounds familiar. I'm not, it, Tay was a program that they created, and they wanted to see how long it would take for a ro robot to be able to speak like you and I do. So they gave Tay a Twitter account, and Tay was on there for a few hours before Tay spoke so awfully and said just the most horrible, heinous things. They had to pull the program down because it was costing people. Because we can't make something without also putting our flaws into it. Now, I'm not saying things are not getting better. They are. I, I, I grant that. Um, just a few years back, Amazon had made an algorithm to select out the best candidates to be, um, to, to be their, uh, their next employees. And uh, back then, most of the men that were, um, were going to school had went to school for the actual positions that they needed to have hired for. So the algorithm started to pick up that since it's mostly selecting men, women must be bad. So men that had like a history of coaching women's basketball would have been selected and thrown in the women's pile. Eventually, the algorithm became sexist and would not allow women to be in the application pool. So they're going to hire all these guys before they finally picked up on it and said, oh my goodness, this is wrong. So we designed our own flaws into the system. So this is one of the problems that I have with the idea of only determinism is every time we try to make something, we also put our flaws onto it. So how is it that without the ability to make choices that we can ever make enough progress to make something without having our flaws in it? 
Well, for example, let's take a, a standard computer that can calculate, you know, multiply a hundred digit number by a hundred digit number, get it ex exactly right every time. And we as flawed individuals created that machine. So, you know, and with, with, with artificial intelligence and machine learning, it's like there, there's, um, there's this game called Go, and it apparently computer was trained, wasn't even trained to, to, uh, to, um, to play the game. The computer had to figure it out itself, and it did, and it's an intuitive game. So I guess my, what I'm trying to say is that we can create computers and tell artificial intelligence that we can program to understand morality, to understand the purpose of morality. And then once it understands that, to operate in, in, in ways that are thousands of times more moral than we could be. Because it, 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 um, you know, it, it began with the, first, with the basic premises that it then computed and, and then you know, advanced. One last thing I just wanna, wanna throw in here. Um, just kind of in closing, how do I know, how do you know, George, how to cooperate? How is it that you and I, right now, I mean, what's to stop you from clicking the end meeting right now? That's something that I've been learning on my new series, God. It seems like we have this conscience that, that, that is involved in discerning right from wrong. And it seems like this conscience is like a muscle. If we want to get stronger, we might want to go to the gym and lift weights or, or do some exercise. And I have a feeling that it's the same with our conscience. Like since, you know, talking about God five days a week um, since October, you know, I believe, um, you know, I'm still full of flaws, of course, but I believe I, I've, I've gotten a bit better at, at this kind of discernment. So I think that, that gives us hope that we can get better, keep getting better and better at distinguishing right from wrong. Okay. So I'd like to take just a couple minutes, and I just want to reiterate your position as you have given it to me today, not, not relying on anything that I've heard you say before, but simply just on our conversation, and then uh, if, if I'm wrong, correct me, all right? So God has existed from eternity past. God doesn't have, um, you know, a start. God is in everything and has created everything from himself. You would say herself because you're trying to add that feminine um, aspect in there. So God also has a plan that we do not have the right to question, we can't say, God, why do you do this? Who are we, the, the pot to say to the potter, how have you made me this way? Um, all things that are happening today are working through a system that God has set up where the next thing I say, God determined for me to say to you tonight, George, because of the conversation that you and I are having. So for us to hold the criminal accountable is a good thing because he did will himself to do these things and at the same time I am supposed to keep in mind that he couldn't have avoided doing these things because it was determined for him to do it and looking forward in the next hundred years uh, what this will do for us is give us the opportunity to invest ourselves in progress in making sure that, uh, that we are raising up the young 
um, to know a more moral position from that of determinism so that they can be the inventors of the future and um, bring about the, the next generation of peace. Did, did I get it? Oh, yeah. Excellent. Excellent. Definitely. All right. George, I really appreciate your time. I, I really do. And I thank you so much for, uh, for putting some time into this. Well, I thank you, Jason. Yes, and, and, and I, I appreciate your, your, you know, you're a fundamentalist, and, and that's, you know, that's, that's a position I have to respect. That's a, a, a perspective. But you're also very open-minded. You're, you're searching for the truth. That is so important. Welcome to Worldview Clash Clash Others. Ah!